Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like the little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. It's really great to be back with you for a second week in a row. Uh, It'll be super helpful if you keep Matthew 18 open in front of you as we go through. Who do you guys reckon is the best chef in the world? I've got a couple of options that you can choose from. Uh, Option one, Heston Blumenthal, a pretty impressive kind of guy. Option two, Marco Pierre White, uh, very serious uh, but uh, very, very famous. Option three, Salt Bay. Uh, No Michelin stars, but a lot of internet memes. Now, who's the greatest chef out of those guys? How would you put those three in order of greatness? Uh, What things do you think you'd have to take into account to try and work out which of them is the greatest? Would you have to take into account who has the biggest TV following? Uh, Who has the most restaurants? Who has the most Michelin stars? What things would you have to take into account to work out which of those three is the greatest? What if I asked a different question? Who's the greatest Olympian? Here's some options for you. Would you pick Michael Phelps, the guy who's got the most gold? Or, because the Olympics is not just about pure sporting achievement, it's also about world events, would you pick someone like Yusra Mardini, who was the face of the first ever Olympics refugee team? She overcame some really huge obstacles just to compete. Or my personal favourite, would you pick someone like Zara Namati? Uh, Zara is pretty amazing. She originally planned to compete in the Olympics in Taekwondo, uh, but she was hit by a car. Her spine was crushed. She's now paralysed from the waist down and she's wheelchair bound, but she totally refused to give up on her Olympic dream, so she just retrained in a different sport. Uh, She retrained in archery. And amazingly, she got good enough to actually compete in the Olympics against able-bodied athletes. I think she's totally amazing. So what order would you put those three in? Who's the greatest Olympian, do you think? I don't think you can actually work that out unless you know what the Olympics values. 
So what about this question? Who's the greatest Christian? Uh, What things would you have to consider to try and work that question out? Would you take into account how well they know their Bible? How many people they've seen converted? How successful their ministry is? Who's the greatest Christian? Well, actually, I don't think you can work that out unless you actually can work out what Jesus values. Who's the greatest Christian? Well, that's kind of the question that the disciples come and ask Jesus in the passage that we just read. So come with me and see how Jesus answers this question. You can see the question there in verse 1, so chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers with a visual aid. Now, in the first century, he didn't have PowerPoint, so he has to pull a visual aid out of the crowd. He goes and gets a child and he puts them in front of them. And you can look at the visual aid there in verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child amongst them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, which straight away, I think, begs a pretty big question. In what way are the disciples supposed to be like this little child so that they enter the kingdom of heaven? What characteristic is Jesus using this child to actually promote? And I reckon it's kind of tempting for us to say, oh, well, you know, children, they're kind of sweet, they're innocent. Jesus is saying that we're supposed to be innocent like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, There's a couple of problems, I think, uh, if that's your view. Uh, I think the first problem is that relies on you never having met a child. Uh, I'm a father of three gorgeous boys. I absolutely love them, let me tell you. It doesn't take parents long to work out children are not innocent. Wonderful, yes. Innocent, no. Uh, uh, Secondly, I think the problem, to say that Jesus uses this child as a visual aid of innocence, I think actually misses what children represent in the first culture. Uh, first century culture. In Jesus' culture, children did not represent innocence. Uh, They actually represented the lowest of their society. Uh, In their culture, children were a picture of the lowest and the least important members of their society. They weren't old enough to farm, they weren't strong enough to fight, they were the lowest and least important it's kind of the opposite in our culture, isn't it? In our culture, children, are, they're really high members of society. In many ways, they're the centre of uh, our lives, if you have them. But certainly not in Jesus' culture. Uh, so when Jesus takes a child and puts it in front of the disciples and says, you have to be like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven, they do not see a visual picture of innocence or importance. Uh, what they see is a picture of the lowest, the humblest, the neediest, the least impressive. And with that picture in their minds, Jesus then says to them, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think you actually needed me to tell you that children in the first century were viewed really lowly. You could actually work that out from the passage yourself, because look at what Jesus says next in verse 4. Uh, Therefore, whoever is innocent like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he says. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, So when Jesus says, unless you become like this child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying unless you're innocent uh, like a child. 
He's saying, unless you see your lowliness, your neediness, your complete dependence on God, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's those who enter, those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those that actually understand they don't have the greatness to actually do it themselves. They're needy and lowly, kind of like children were in Jesus' time. If, if Jesus were preaching this today in our culture, there's no way he'd use a child, I think, as a picture of lowliness or neediness. I think in our culture, he'd have to call forward somebody different. He might call forward a homeless, unemployed migrant from a despised racial group. Or maybe he would call forward an unwanted refugee and he would say something like this, unless you become like this refugee, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lowly, needy, powerless. Actually, I think a refugee in many ways is a really good visual picture of a Christian. A refugee is somebody that turns up on the border of a country saying, I have nothing, I own nothing, I cannot buy my way in, but please, in your mercy, let me in. They're completely at the mercy of that country to save them. It's actually a really good visual image of a Christian for us, I think, because we stand on the border of heaven saying, I have nothing to merit my way in, nothing that I can use to buy my way in, I'm completely reliant on your kindness, lowly and needy. Uh, We sing a a song um, quite often in church, Rock of Ages, Uh, I think we're going to sing it tonight because I heard the musicians practicing it earlier uh, when I got here and there's this great uh, thing that we sing when we say that. The words say, nothing in my heart I bring, simply to your cross I cling, naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace, stained by sin to you I cry, wash me saviour or I die. They're words that capture our lowliness and, and our neediness because those who enter the kingdom of heaven actually understand they don't have the merit to get in themselves, they understand their lowliness They understand that nothing in their hand they bring. People get to heaven not because they're great, but actually because they recognise that they're not and they ask for help. So with that in mind, can you see the irony of what we just read? Can you see the irony of the disciples saying to Jesus, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Peter, he was the first one to identify you as the Christ. I, maybe I've driven out demons or whatever. Which one of us 12 disciples are the greatest? And Jesus' response is to kind of say, you're really asking who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You, you really want to know who the MVP is, who brings the most value to the table. That attitude of self-promotion, it's actually so opposite to kingdom values that it risks keeping you out. And so Jesus says to them, unless you change and become like this child, someone who understands their lowliness and their neediness, then that risks actually not getting to heaven. Who's the greatest? Well, that attitude of self-promotion, which the disciples are asking, Jesus thoroughly rebukes. Boom, what a body shot Jesus lands to their pride. Uh, What a way to rock their kind of lack of humility, their sense of self-promotional greatness. It's only after Jesus does that, kind of really rocks that uh, sort of self-promotional attitude, it's only then that he engages with the question of who is actually the greatest and he answers it in verse 4. 
He says in verse 4, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Now, notice that word takes. Uh, Whoever takes the lowly position of the child is greatest in the kingdom. That's an important word to notice, I think. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the person who happens to find themselves in a low position and hates it and tries to get out of it. The one who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who takes, who gives themselves the lowly position, the one who humbles themselves. Greatest is the one who humbles themselves. I want to give you an illustration of what this might look like. A friend of mine many years ago worked for a Christian company. Uh, and the boss, uh, the CEO, is someone that you expect to be paid the most in the company, right? He, they're generally paid the most and every other employee gets paid less depending on their value to the company. Uh, well, my friend one day accidentally found out that the boss of this Christian organisation had actually structured uh, this organisation so that they, as the boss, were actually paid the least out of any employee in the company. The least. As the boss, they had the most stress. As the boss, they had the most responsibility. As the boss, they had the highest position and most pressure. And they had deliberately structured it so that they were paid the least out of any employee in the company. That person took the lowly position. Who's the greatest Olympian? Actually, you can't answer that unless you understand what the Olympics values. Who's the greatest chef? Actually, you can't answer that unless you know what the chefing world values. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's no way to answer that unless you understand what the kingdom of heaven values. And the king just told us that it's taking the lowly position. At the heart of this kingdom is a king who takes the lowly position, Jesus. He's God. He's the sustainer and creator of the whole world. He's the one who should be worshipped and held in the highest position of honour and he takes upon himself the lowliest position of a servant, one who goes to the cross for people like you and me. And get this, the disciples just went to that guy, went to that guy and said, hey, which one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, And Jesus, in what I think is just remarkably patient teaching, uh, just calls forward a child from the crowd and puts him in front of the disciples and says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest. Uh, I, I would have loved to have seen the look on the disciples' face when Jesus did that, because it's so opposite to how the world thinks about greatness. If you've been a Christian for a while, I think you can lose the shock value of what Jesus just said. But this is way more shocking than that CEO structuring a company so that he is paid the least. What Jesus says is so opposite to how the world thinks of greatness. That's the big picture that Jesus is saying about greatness. He is saying the one who takes the lowest position is the greatest. And then he kind of spends his time in the rest of this passage kind of talking about some applications. Once you've grasped that main point, some applications for what it means for us to live in community if we really get this. So two applications on how to relate to each other, I think, in Christian community. Uh, The first one is welcome little ones. Welcome the lowly and the unimpressive. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 5. Whoever welcomes one such a child 
meaning the lowly, in my name welcomes me. And, and in verse 10, he kind of says the same thing, but instead of saying it positively, he puts it negatively. Verse 10, see that you do not despise, that's the opposite of welcome, I think, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, no, I reckon, I reckon we're nailing this application. Uh, lots of us here do, do kids' ministry. We just had circus mania. Uh, we do lots of stuff for kids. Uh, well, hang on, remember, kids are an image of the lowest of their society. So just reread verse 5 with that in mind. Verse 5 would say something like this. Whoever welcomes the lowest in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes the homeless, uh, the socially awkward... Uh, the mentally or emotionally unstable welcomes me. And Jesus is particularly saying that, I think, about welcoming Christians who are lowly in the eyes of society. Because children or or little ones is Jesus' term in this passage for Christians. So look at the beginning of verse 6. At the start of verse 6 he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me... Now stop there and just notice what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus used little ones to refer to Christians. Uh, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believes in me. So little ones is Jesus' term in this passage for Christians because Christians are the ones who understand we are lowly and humble and far from great. So when Jesus says, welcome little ones, he's not simply saying, welcome those who are the lowest in society. He is saying that. But I think specifically, he is saying, welcome Christians who by worldly standards are unimportant, unimpressive, lowly. Welcome the humble, welcome the homeless Christian. Welcome the mentally unstable brother or sister, the socially awkward, the emotionally damaged and draining Christian. I think we all know that Christian, don't we? And, and I think we sometimes feel the sense or the temptation to kind of distance ourselves, uh, to, to not welcome them actually as well as we could because actually that person's really hard to welcome. I feel like uh, there's t- a test for us every week in church on this. Do you guys have supper tonight? I saw like toasties and stuff out there. Okay, yeah, great. So in some ways, that's the litmus test uh, for this. So imagine you, you finish here tonight, you walk out saying, oh, wasn't that, wasn't that a great talk? Just imagine that. You, <laughs> you walk out saying, oh, wasn't that a great talk? And you head out to supper and the, the toasty machine is going and they're, they're pumping out the, the toasted sandwiches. You grab yours and you turn around to work out, okay, I'm just going to plonk myself down with, with some people here. And, and over there you see that Christian. Uh, the one who by worldly standards is pretty lowly and unimpressive. Maybe they're socially awkward, Uh, maybe they're mentally unstable, maybe they're emotionally just actually really hard work, but they're standing there with their toasted sandwich alone and you think, someone should really go stand with them, Uh, maybe I should go do that. Uh, But you hesitate and in your hesitation, over on the other side of the courtyard, you notice another group of your brothers and sisters here, a group full of Christians who by worldly standards are anything but lowly. Uh, they're, they're easygoing, uh, they're successful, they're smart, uh, uh, they're um, attractive. It would actually be really fun to go and join that group for the next 15 minutes. 
Uh, which one do you want to choose? You know that feeling, right? Well, into that feeling comes the words of our Lord. Whoever welcomes one such a child, I think meaning the lowly Christian, welcomes me. And it's here, I think, that the words of Jesus, they actually start to put pressure on our worldly assessment of what makes people great. And that's his first application for us tonight. Welcome, little ones. Welcome the Christian who, by worldly standards, is small, unimportant, unimpressive and lowly because they're great in the kingdom of heaven. The second application Jesus has for us is don't trip little ones, don't cause them to stumble. Pick it up with me from the next verse. Look at verse 6 onwards. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. That word stumble there, it means to put an obstacle in someone's path or to kind of trip them up. I mentioned at the start that we have three boys at home. Our youngest, who's a bit under two, he, he's going through a real habit where he does this all the time at the moment. He's, he's worked out that if he gets this, a stool and he puts it in the kitchen, he's actually tall enough to just reach up onto the kitchen bench to get whatever is there. So here he is uh, using his stool to get the peanut butter that I left on the bench over lunchtime. Now, when he gets the thing off the table and he, and he runs away, what do you reckon he does with the stool? He leaves it there, he's two, like he, it's not a thought process that he has to, to put it away. So what do you think happens when I walk around the corner of the kitchen not knowing there's a stool there? I trip over it, it's happening a lot uh, at the moment. Now me stumbling over that stool, it's actually really not that big of a deal. Stumbling over something, put a, putting a stumbling block for someone, actually starts to get serious though when they fall and actually lose something. So you actually see this sometimes in the Olympics, Uh, Some runner trips up another runner and causes them to fall and they actually drop out of the race because they're injured. I always feel terrible when that happens at the Olympics. That runner who got tripped, he's probably been training their whole life to get here and then some careless runner just sort of trips them up. It's terrible when it happens at the Olympics. But it's eternally disastrous when it happens in someone's Christian race when one Christian trips up another Christian and causes them to fall and actually drop out of the Christian race before the finish line, to pull out of living the Christian life and having their trust in Jesus before the last day. That's what Jesus has in mind here. That's what he has in mind when he says, don't trip up little ones, don't cause another Christian to stumble. Maybe you've heard somebody say something like this, I used to be a Christian, but the church I was at was really judgmental. I used to be a Christian, but all the Christians that I knew were hypocrites. I used to be a Christian, but I walked away from Christianity years ago because the leaders at my church were arrogant. I think that's what Jesus has in mind here when he says, do not cause little ones to stumble, don't trip Christians. Uh, So I found it really worthwhile for me this week to pause and ask myself the question, and maybe you'll find this worthwhile too. 
to ask yourself the question, am I doing anything that's potentially putting stumbling blocks in the path of one of my brothers and sisters? Is there a lack of love in my life? A lack of hospitality? Is there any sin in my life that I'm happy with that actually gives the impression to some of my brothers and sisters that rejecting God's rule is okay? Is there any pride or any sense that I look down on other Christians? Because they're all things that can be stumbling blocks for somebody else so that they drop out and trip up before they cross the finish line. Uh, this is something that, if you, if you didn't pick it up in the passage, this is something Jesus treats really seriously. Did you notice the imagery of verse 6? He says, If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, those who believe in me, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Uh, Jesus is very protective, isn't he, of his little ones. Jesus is so upset at the idea of one of us causing another Christian to fall away, he says it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Just feel the gravity of what Jesus says there. That's an open threat by Jesus. Jesus makes a similar kind of statement in verse 10, but it's a lot more veiled. Just look at verse 10. Say that you do not despise one of these little ones... I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. It's a little bit cryptic, but I think that means uh, their angels who have access to God will tell the Father in heaven about you despising one of his little ones. Now, I don't think that's Jesus being literal. I don't think angels kind of walk around dobbing on us as we sort of um, mistreat uh, other Christians. God is sovereign. He sees all. Uh, But I think... This is supposed to get across the idea that you're you're supposed to make sure you don't despise another Christian. Why? Because their heavenly Father will see and he won't turn a blind eye because these are his little ones. You, You cannot mistreat the children because if the Father sees, the Father will be very upset. Let me give you an illustration of this principle. And my kids play basketball every Saturday morning, uh, so I take them up to the stadium, um, first thing Saturday morning, and a few months ago, my five-year-old was waiting for his game to start, and so he was happily playing on an unused court. Uh, But then a group of teenagers came along and kicked him off the court so that they could use it while they were waiting for their game to start. Now, my five-year-old put his head down, he he walked away with his basketball, and he went and sat down on the court uh, looking really sad and just watching these teenagers play. Uh, Here's the problem, though. Uh, That little boy's father saw the whole thing happen. You know that feeling you get when it's like somebody lights that little stick of dynamite that sits somewhere around here, and it goes poof, and you can kind of feel the heat kind of growing. So down went the newspaper... Out came the earphones. I walked straight down the grandstand and onto the court. As soon as I got onto the court, I started walking straight for this group of teenagers with my eyes kind of uh, locked in, coming in hot. As I got to about five metres away, some, you know, a couple kind of noticed, there's this large guy who's kind of striding towards us. Uh, I wonder if that's the father. Uh, well, I won't tell you what happened when I finally got there, uh, but after the police had come and... <laughs> That's a joke. That, no. <laughs> um, 
nothing bad happened at all. I was very, very gentle, very respectful, because actually they're someone else's uh, children. Uh, so I, you know, I was very gentle, and it ended very well. It ended uh, with all of them, including uh, my little boy, sharing the court and playing basketball. It all ended well, but here's the thing. They learnt a very valuable lesson. They learnt that you cannot get away with mistreating the child if the father sees. And that's what Jesus just warned. If we mistreat or despise or cause another Christian to stumble, God's not just going to shrug his shoulders. They're his little ones. He cares very deeply. That's why Jesus is so fierce in this passage when it comes to causing other Christians to stumble. He's really fierce in this passage because he really loves them. He loves them that much. They are so intensely precious to him. It really upsets him when they're despised, when they're not welcomed, when they're tripped up, when they're mistreated. See, why did I have that emotional response uh, when those teenagers kind of mistreated my kid? It's because I love him, isn't it? But here's what I want you to realise. That's the love of a selfish, sinful broken, earthly father. So how intense and powerful do you think the love is of the perfect heavenly father for his children? That's why Jesus is so intense in this passage. It's because all Christians, even the lowly ones that the world thinks are unimportant, are infinitely worthy and valuable and loved by God. And it's that value and worth and love that Jesus and God have for every Christian. That's what the last part of the passage is angling at. Just pick it up with me from verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the other 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Did you notice the value of that one little sheep? Uh, Valuable enough that the shepherd actually is happy to leave the 99 and go and pursue the one that is wandering away. They're that valuable to him. And likewise, Jesus says, every single Christian is valuable to God. Even the smallest is valuable. Even that one sheep that is tripped up and is stumbling away from the flock is so valuable to him, so valuable that God pursues them, even to the cross. He loves them that much that he went to the cross. And it's that value of every Christian, regardless of age or social standing or mental health or material wealth. It's that amazing value and worth of every Christian to Jesus that's the motivation behind the two things that he says on the screen. Welcome, little ones, and don't trip, little ones. Firstly, it's that value of every Christian is the reason why he says, welcome, little ones. When you see that socially awkward Christian, or the Christian that as far as the world is concerned is pretty lowly and pretty unimpressive and pretty unimportant. That's actually someone that Jesus values so much, he went to the cross for them. What the world might think is the weakest, 
the most socially awkward, the least impressive or the hardest to relate to Christian, is of such value to the Lord God, he willingly went to the cross to be in relationship with that person for all eternity. And that value of each and every Christian is also what lies behind Jesus' warning not to trip up little ones because they are so valuable to him. It really upsets him to see Christians do this. That's God's little one. There's actually no place for a worldly definition of greatness when it comes to the assessing of the value of any Christian and their worth. Because what appears to be the weakest, the most socially awkward, the least impressive, is of such value to the Lord that he willingly went to the cross. And so Jesus gives us two applications for us in our community. Welcome the little ones and don't trip anybody. And he says that because every single Christian is worth immeasurable value to the Lord Jesus. Amen.